peacefully and change it for the better will be sure to enliven, entertain, and inspire. So tune in to Full Circle this Friday, March 28th from 7 to 8 p.m. here on KPFA 94.1 FM. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. And this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, March 25th, 2014. Oh, the radio, four o'clock in the morning. I've got to turn it off. They were, <clears throat> they were all yattering about the Cold War is on again. Uh, the pundits on the other radio stations, uh, <laughs> Russia, yes. I just wonder why someone hasn't told them that the Soviet Union is no more. What do I know? Where is Bill Mandel now that we need him? Uh, You remember Bill Mandel? Uh, Is he still on the planet? God, I don't know. Uh, If you have any information about that, you should get in touch with me. Uh, Bill Mandel was such an expert on the Soviet Union, such a terrific scholar and, uh, what do you call that, uh, historian, historian, of course, that's what he was, uh, I don't know why, I never understand, uh, why it was thought necessary <laughs> to, um, well, to let him go, uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, I just keep thinking we must understand the past in order to move forward. It's a cliche, but God knows it's true. It infuriates me the way we here in this country forget by Friday what happened on Tuesday. Uh, lately, I've been on the trail of women philosophers trying, you know, trying to go back and find out who we were so we will know who we are. The history of thought, you know, that's the key to things, to the world of today. I don't know why that's so difficult for people. I think it's something to do with the cultural cliches, you know, move on, move forward. Uh, Not just forget the past, but... uh, is that ignore it, eliminate it, uh, but don't take it into consideration. Uh, women writers, of course, uh, are another story. They've struggled and struggled for centuries. 
And, of course, we need to know why and how they've been trying to alter the master narrative. Uh, you know, we call it the, well, I call it the vroom, vroom culture. <laughs> the heroic warrior culture. Even anti-heroes uh, fit the bill that's the bold, you know. Anyway. Yes, last Tuesday I went back to the Brontes, to our foremothers, and I thought I would go on with that because hmm, so many things about Charlotte Bronte and her sisters uh, make them fill the bill for philosopher, prophet, even when they didn't know what it was they were writing. Charlotte uh, was... Anglican, of course, uh, English. Well, she was half, half Irish. Her, her, her father was an Irishman. He was a peasant, actually. Uh, but he made it to Oxford and became a clergyman. Yes, genteel poverty was the fate of this family. Uh, Charlotte tried to uh, become an author to tell, she wanted to tell the truth, you know, tell the truth, but tell it slant. That is, put it in a novel. Uh, it's pretty much the only way open to women in the mid-19th century. Not until Virginia Woolf came along could women do criticism and journalism, you know. Uh, those were all masculine pursuits in the 19th century. Uh, you know how that is. Uh, when a woman calls herself a public intellectual... Susan Sontag, I guess, would be the last, the last one of note. It's, what is it? It's part of the fundamental culture. Uh, I think it's writ over the door. Thou shalt not learn of a woman. That's pretty much the order of the day. Uh, at least you can't admit to having learned from a woman. <laughs> Let's see. Here's Charlotte back in 1850. She's writing a letter to her biographer, Elizabeth Gaskell. And uh, here's what she writes in 1850, 164 years ago, right? Men begin to regard the position of woman in another light than they used to do. And a few men whose sympathies are fine and whose sense of justice is strong think and speak of it, that is, the position of woman, with a candor that commands my admiration. They say, however, and to an extent truly, that the amelioration of our condition depends on ourselves. Certainly there are evils which our own efforts will best reach, but as certainly there are other evils deep-rooted in the foundations of the social system, which no efforts of ours can touch, of which we cannot complain, of which it is advisable not too often to think." That's it. Just don't think about it, girls. Uh, that's what I used to say to myself. Think about that tomorrow. Who was that? Scarlett O'Hara, yes. 
can't think about that today. I'll think about it tomorrow. Uh, okay, uh, fascinating. Fascinating. I love to write, read the letters, the, uh, off the record, uh, words of so many women in the 19th century. They always say all kinds of things to their women friends that they wouldn't dare say in public or, you know, for publication. George Sand is my favorite. She writes to her women friends most incredible stuff about marriage, and then she turns around and writes to her publishers with these, I would call them, uh, seductive letters trying to persuade these men to allow her to discuss marriage. They didn't do it, actually. They wouldn't let her talk about marriage or the, what is it, the possibility of divorce. Couldn't publish that sort of thing in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, anyway, Let's see. Conditions of women. She says some of it we can fix ourselves, but there's other stuff that we can't. Let's see. I guess I'd say we might be able to fix the masochism, the addiction to romance. But, uh, yeah, we can alter that. But what she calls the unthinkable things we can't think about, uh, I always think of Andrea Dworkin when she wrote, I simply write what men do. Well, we all know now that can get you killed. Check out the Congo and a hundred other places on the globe today. The war on women has gone from a state of siege to a reign of terror in the 1950s. The state of siege taught me to keep my head down and my mouth shut. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. That sounds like a double entendre, dirty joke. Our age is so pornographic. Anything you say can be made to sound coarse. Uh, pornograph, picture of a whore. That is what rules today. Image of a whore. Sex as product. It can be purchased, paid for consumed in a consumer culture, right? <laughs> so, so funny the way we, what do you call that, uh, change the names to protect the guilty. Uh, anyway, Charlotte, 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 uh, I guess, I guess I want to go back to Charlotte Bronte. Uh, stick to, yeah, stick, focus on her because her life, what is it, uh, is a perfect parable for our own. Uh, let me start with this wonderful letter written to Charlotte by the uh, poet laureate. Uh, <laughs> his name was Robert Southey, and he was a real prick, a real stuffed shirt. Uh, he warned Charlotte that her dreams might cause her to neglect her domestic duties. <laughs> here's, here's what the man writes. She wrote to him asking for advice. That was foolish. Anyway, he writes, The daydreams in which you habitually indulge are likely to induce a distempered state of mind, and in proportion as all the ordinary uses of the world seem to you flat and unprofitable... What a derivative derelict he is. Pardon me, I interrupted. 
Yes, ordinary uses of the world seem to you flat and unprofitable. You will be unfitted for them without becoming fitted for anything else. Literature cannot be the business of a woman's life, and it ought not to be. The more she is engaged in her proper duties, the less leisure will she have for it, even as an accomplishment and a recreation. To those duties you have not yet been called, and when you are, you will be less eager for celebrity. You will not seek in imagination for excitement. <laughs> excitement, right. He has some crazy idea of what her life was all about. Here we go. I'll read you something about that. The uh, conditions under which Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre. Here we go. August 1846, Charlotte went with her father to Manchester, where he had a cataract operation on both his eyes. You remember, uh, the father lived into his 80s. Charlotte died at 39. During the weeks of uh, Patrick Bronte's convalescence, that's the father, Charlotte was forced to sit with him in the dark. Leeches were put on his temples, but not on his eyelids. Belladonna, prepared from the deadly nightshade, was put in his eyes to expand the pupils. Charlotte herself was agonized by toothache at this time. And the pain, she wrote to a friend, the pain had left her stupefied. That's the word she uses. It was in this condition, this atmosphere, that she forced herself to write in order to escape the torment of her existence. It was perhaps not so much an escape as a transmutation. Modern critics suggest that she wrote in a trance state. It is to this circumstance that we owe the novel Jane Eyre. Now, that trance there is one of my favorites. There's a chapter uh, titled The Spectral Cells of Charlotte Bronte in a great book called The Mad Woman in the Attic. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it says that the theory of the mad woman in the attic is the repressed self. We know all that stuff. Uh, but, of course, Charlotte uh, wrote before. Freud and before Carl Jung, uh, I think that the unconscious self was uh, always available to these imaginative women. Uh, Virginia Woolf buried her uh, dark secrets so deep they only emerged during psychotic breaks. She too, like Bertha Rochester, the mad woman in the attic in Jane Eyre, she attacked her husband physically, you know, uh, tried to hurt him. I think Virginia Woolf was actually subdued with, I'm not sure it was a straitjacket, but she had to be uh, uh, physically, <laughs> physically held back. She went for Leonard. Anyway, uh, here's more about the conditions under which this woman wrote her masterpiece. Uh, she lived in the village of Haworth. Haworth was one of the unhealthiest villages in England. 
during the Bronte years. It was more hazardous to human health than the slums of London during the same era. Open privies and dung heaps were the rule. Is it any wonder the children fled out to the moors rather than try to go among their fellow men in the village? Uh, in 1820, Haworth had no drainage system, and it possessed not one water closet. I'll repeat that. Not one water closet. We're talking outhouses everywhere, you know. The parsonage where they lived, the parsonage was surrounded on three sides by a graveyard in which there was an average of two burials a week. The well which supplied the Brontes with their drinking water was sunk into this cemetery. They literally drank death every day. Reports of the health inspectors indicated that the church smelled moribund. Is a quote from the uh, report of the health inspectors. The exhalations from the remains of past generations inside the building have long rendered it a most undesirable place in which to worship without being too pungently reminded of the ultimate end of all things. <laughs> yes, that was the church where Charlotte Bronte married her father's curate, Arthur Bell Nichols. Uh, the father, Patrick, would not attend the, the uh, marriage ceremony. I'm sure he understood that this was uh, this would finish his daughter uh, all the other children were dead by that time and uh, Charlotte did die uh, within well about a year she got pregnant and that was the I don't say the straw that broke anyway she went out for a walk with her husband caught cold and what with the pregnancy and uh, tuberculosis that uh, killed her at the age of 39. Anyway, all those graves set around the parsonage were covered over with stone slabs. There were no trees at that time, so decomposition was not allowed to take its course. The water supply was poor. It often gave out completely in the summer heat when typhus raged. The parsonage had one double-seated privy out in the yard. Imagine what it must have been like to live in that small house with six children and two servants. Uh, let's see, six children, two adults, until their mother died when uh, the oldest child was seven or eight. Let's see, yes, uh, six children in seven years. Uh, the mother died of a cancer. Anyway, a, a government inspector's report, which is dated 1850, describes a situation in Haworth which had not altered much in 30 years. Here again is a quote from the uh, government inspector's report. Two of the privies used by a dozen families each are in the public street not only within view of the houses, but exposed to the gaze of passers-by, whilst a third uh, 
<laughs> as though even such a situation uh, <laughs> were too private is perched upon an eminence. Yes. <laughs> we can't allow any privacy. They put the put the seat up on a kind of throne. Uh, yes, uh, it commanded the whole length of the main street. The cesspit of this privy lies below it and opens by a small door into the main street. Occasionally this door is burst open by the superincumbent weight of night soil and ashes, and they overflow into the public street and at all times a disgusting efflu effluvium escapes. End quote. Oh, it's no wonder that their Aunt Branwell wore these patents, the raised shoes necessary for walking in the street. Aunt Branwell was uh, the mother's sister who came to take care of the children after their mother died. Uh, Aunt Branwell is a curious character, but I'll get I'll get around to her later. She seems to have been the significant elder for the youngest child, Anne Bronte. Uh, anyway, the reason that I'm giving so many details is to suggest that when the Brontes wrote their books, they were trying to escape or to transmute these mordant realities in their world. They did not lie about their time. They only tried to shape it, to give it some meaning and significance. Uh, Emily, for example, she tried to create an order where in truth she saw only chaos. An ordered universe suggests the possibility of God. I guess perhaps uh, they were romantics after all. Uh, I suppose under those conditions you have to think that something better is coming. Uh, now, the Christianity of the Brontes was never soft, never sensual. Uh, Charlotte and Emily both like to describe the uh, Romish, that is Catholic, sort of religiosity which they met in Brussels. Mm -hmm. They thought the girls in the school in Brussels were sensualists, you know spoiled, uh, opulent. For these stern and stoic daughters of the Calvinist cloth, straight is the gate. Ah, uh, stiff spines, right. Now, who could have been less well-equipped for a life of self-denial than these oh-so-vulnerable early Victorian geniuses? No material wealth, uh, they actually were as poor as the peasants and laborers who lived in their village. They had to keep up a show of gentility and refinement. Charlotte writes in a letter to a friend that she tried some newfangled thing. She called it a shower bath. And, quote, I found it most refreshing. Imagine living with no running water and the sanitary situation. Uh, well... I have a paragraph here in which I uh, opine about what it was like. 
to have menstrual periods and that kind of thing. Uh, the crippling cold and damp seems to me the worst. Chill blames. Candles were expensive. Often the sisters would walk around and around the dining table in the evening, in the dark. You know, candles, they couldn't keep burning the candles. They walked in the hope of wearing themselves out and getting a night's sleep. After the death of the others, the sisters and brothers, Charlotte continued this habit alone, as her eyes gave her a great deal of trouble, and it was very hard to read in the evening. Now, the mortality rate in the village of Haworth equaled that recorded in the London slums of this period. The average age at death was at times as low as 19.6 years. <laughs> yes, 41 out of 100 children dying before their sixth birthday. The first public health act in England was not passed until the 1840s. This public health act made a connection between the burial of the dead in towns and the prevalence of disease. Apparently, the notion that cadavers contaminate was new. Uh, even in the hospitals, there was little effort to separate the living from the dead. Imagine burying your dead outside the city. <laughs> During those years, the germ theory of disease had yet to be promulgated, and physicians often went directly from examining a corpse to delivering a baby without washing their hands. Mothers died of septicemia, or what they called childbed fever, all over Europe and England. Uh, uh, then I have here a nice passage in this essay I wrote many years ago. It's all about uh, Mary Wollstonecraft and her death from childbed fever. She gave birth to Mary Shelley and uh, took her many weeks to die. Hard for us to imagine the prevalence of so much death day to day. But for the Brontes, eternity was not a metaphor. Sitting alone in the parsonage, Charlotte writes, There have I sat on the low bedstead, my eyes fixed on the window through which no other landscape than a monstrous stretch of moorland and a grey church tower rising from the center of a churchyard, so filled with graves that the rank weeds and coarse grass scarce had room to shoot up between the monuments. Of course, for Emily, for perhaps the, I don't like to, to uh, measure them, but some people think that Emily was the reigning genius. Charlotte thought so. Uh, for Emily, her bleak world was always a source of passion. She used her life to fuel her art. Here's what she writes. Uh, there is a spot mid barren hills where winter howls and drives the rain. 
The house is old, the trees are bare, moonless above Ben's twilight dome. The mute bird sitting on the stone, the dark moss dripping from the wall. The thorn trees gaunt, the walks o'ergrown, I love them. How I love them all. I tried to use Emily Bronte's poems for my uh, masters. You know, you had to have major authors. And I said, Emily Bronte as poet. They wouldn't allow it. I had to use all the works of all three sisters to make up one major author. It's pretty funny. Uh, anyway, this essay, uh, which I struggled over for many months, uh, I think I may go on with it next week because it's still the most fascinating portrait of what women can do to, what is that, lift lift their mind and spirit out of the horrors that they know. Uh, I think, you know, this business of complaining about our oppression, I, I think, uh, I think that's no good. I think we have to try under any conditions. Prison is a good place to write a good novel. Uh, let's see. I think I have time. Ah, uh, no, I won't read you Branwell's death. Let me read you just a little bit of what Mrs. Gaskell writes about these young women. She writes, the first impression made on the visitor by the sisters was that Emily was a tall, long-armed girl, more fully grown than her sister Charlotte, and extremely reserved in manner. I distinguish reserve from shyness because I imagine shyness would please if it knew 